Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Good morning. So today, God speaks to us from uh, John 17, 20 to 26. I will be reading in Spanish. Jesús ora por todos los creyentes. No ruego solo por estos, ruego también por los que han de creer en mí por el mensaje de ellos, para que todos sean uno. Padre, así como tú estás en mí y yo en ti, permite que ellos también estén en nosotros, para que el mundo crea que tú me has enviado. Yo les he dado la gloria que me diste para que sean uno, así como nosotros somos uno, yo en ti, tú y tú en mí. Permite que alcancen la perfección en la unidad y así el mundo reconozca que tú me enviaste y que los has amado a ellos tal como me has amado a mí. Padre, quiero que los que me has dado estén donde yo estoy, que vean mi gloria, la gloria que me has dado porque me amaste desde antes de la creación del mundo. Padre justo, aunque el mundo no te conoce, yo sí te conozco y estos reconocen que tú me enviaste. Yo les he dado a conocer quién eres y seguiré haciéndolo para que el amor con que me has amado esté en ellos y yo mismo esté en ellos. This is the word of the Lord. Gracias a Dios. For those of you that have been with us over the last uh, several weeks, we have been in a series called DNA, which we have been uh, taking a look at uh, who we are as a church. One of the things that we've come back to over and over again uh, in the series is that since we um, first launched in 2019, uh, the world is not the same place uh, that it was then. So much has changed uh, since 2019, but despite the changes uh, of the world in which we live, uh, we don't believe that the mission and vision that God uh, gave to us uh, at the beginning of our church planting days uh, has changed it all. And so what we've been doing uh, is we've been re-engaging with our mission, our vision, and our values uh, so that we are all very much on the same page uh, about the very particular specific calling that we believe that the Lord's given uh, Redeemer East Harlem. Uh, and again, if you've been with us, we've taken a look at our vision statement We've looked at our mission, and uh, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at our core values. Uh, and today, we look at our final core value, which is that of unity. Uh, let me read for you our statement on unity, what we mean by it. We believe that we are a church that um, believes that God's love breaks down racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, and cultural barriers and brings unity through the power of the gospel. Uh, we live in a time when division and antagonism are rampant and even signals of vir virtue in a lot of different places. Uh, we live in a culture that prioritizes identity politics over ironic and unifying dialogue. We live in a time when cancel culture often uh, leads us with uh, outrage and these cathartic impulses to cut others down or exclude those uh, who don't measure up to our ideology or our priorities. Uh, a culture where forgiveness and mercy and humility are seen less and less as virtuous, but are rather viewed as weakness or useless in the culture wars. 
And there are numerous ideologies and identity markers that often cause deep divides. However, what happens when people transcend those ideologies and identity markers and become a unified community despite the differences that exist? What kind of power makes enemies into family, all while keeping the distinctions of those uh, individuals who are unique individuals with unique experiences? That's what I want to consider today. Now, if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked at a portion of uh, John 17, which is a prayer known as the high priestly prayer. It's a prayer that Jesus prayed for all of his followers. Uh, And it's also just as a side note, important to say that Jesus, when he prays that prayer, is not just praying that prayer for his disciples at the time, but as verse 20 shows us uh, in our passage, that it's, this prayer is also for those who would believe as a result of their message. So if you're a Christian here today, that's you, right? This prayer of Jesus is for you. He has prayed it for you. But the last time that we considered this prayer, we unpacked our core value of community involvement, and we noted that Jesus has this desire for his church to be a, a distinct community that is not of the world, but that's rather sent out into the world, But then immediately following his call for Christians to be sent into the world in verses uh, 13 through 19, he immediately shifts gears and presents to us the posture with which we ought to now go into the world. And the posture with which he expects his church to move into the world is with a posture of unity. Because according to verse 23, according to Jesus, this is how people will know that we are actually followers of him in the ways that Christians love one another. Our witness to the world as Christians is dependent on our willingness to be in unity with others who follow Jesus. So we need to understand this unity because we live in a time, again, where unity is rare and it's often rejected. So let's consider this unity three ways. The nature of unity, the challenge of unity, and then finally, the power for unity, right? So first, the nature of unity. Uh, If you were to consider the ingredients needed for unity, what might they be? And there's probably a a lot of different uh, answers that we might come up with, but I have found that functionally, most people, when they think about being unified with someone else, they assume it's going to require uniformity. In other words, to find a sense of unity, there must be a willingness to conform in order to find that unity with others. But while maybe in some contexts that might be the case, within Christian community, it's absolutely not the case. In fact, unity in the midst of diversity is at the very core and nature of Christian community. Because as Jesus noted, unity in diversity is actually the very nature of God himself. Look at uh, verse 21 through 22. So what Jesus says. He says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that, that, that they may be one as we are one. There is so much that we could unpack in that, uh, those few sentences there. 
And also, just while this is not the point, I just want to say, you cannot read that passage of Scripture and not see Jesus uh, unequivocally um, referring to himself as God, just as a side note. There's one of those passages, Jesus very much understood himself to be God. But Jesus understands that Christian community is fundamentally related to and interwoven with the unity found between himself and the Father. And while we can't possibly uh, unpack all the implications of that today, what needs to be said is simply this, that the nature and the substance of Christian unity is actually the Trinity. Within Christian theology, of course, we have the idea of the Trinity, which might be the most perplexing ideas of the entire Christian faith. Essentially, it's the notion that there is one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord is one, there's one God, Yet at the same time, Scripture explicitly over and over again describes this one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And within this unified self exists perfect complementary harmony, but not uniformity. That is, they are distinct persons within the Godhead. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Father, the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. They are distinct, and yet they are one with distinct roles. This is most evident in what uh, we would call the missio dei, the mission of God. That while God is three persons, he's also completely, and also I should just say, completely satisfied within that Godhead. He has this mission, that God is a sending God, a missionary God, where the Father sends the Son, and the Son completes this great work to accomplish uh, regeneration and conversion and justification and adoption and so on. And then the Son sends the Spirit to apply that great work and preserve the redeemed until glory. This triune God is perfectly aligned and in harmony with that mission, yet despite that perfect unity, they are distinct and they contribute differently to that mission. Now, this is extraordinarily important for understanding what Jesus is praying here in John 17, because similarly, Jesus is praying that his disciples experience a unity like the Missio Dei that centers on a mission and allows each person to bring something distinct in that unity. Remember, he prayed that we would be sent out into the world and that we would do so in a unified way. And so that now on mission, we can go with our different roles, our different uniqueness, and yet do so together in unity. I mean, this is you know, what Paul is getting at in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 when he argues that the body has many different parts. And yet when the body is functioning well, each part has its own role to play, though it's unified into one body. You know, if you were to think about what it would mean uh, to lose a body part, you would say, of course, that something about the body uh, now becomes a bit more complicated, that it's harder when all things are not present and functioning well. You know, if I were to, if you were to think about what is, I don't know, the most insignificant part of the body that you're willing to give up, one of the things that always comes to mind for me uh, is the pinky toe. I don't know if anybody else feels that way. Like, if I had to lose anything, I'd probably let that one go. But we'd also say, if we lose our pinky toe, that throws off the balance of the entire body, does it not? Or how about this? Have you ever thought about, have you ever woken up um, and had that, that crick in your neck? 
It's amazing how that little bit of pain just like right there impacts everything. You just cannot function normally because there's something that's just a little bit off. That's very much the kind of idea that Paul is drawing out in 1 Corinthians 12, that there is a body and that we ought to uh, all play a particular kind of role, a function. And when we do that, if we're unified in that way, then we're able to exist out into this world in full capacity. But we're not all the same. We're all different. You know, another great uh, biblical example is, of course, the example of marriage, where God actually very much uh, articulates this idea of being distinct and yet unified. In Genesis 2, God establishes marriage that uh, a man and a woman coming together, they become one flesh. Two people who are very different are now made one. Uh, and when I think about, just as an example, my wife and I, we are both very, very different in some key ways. Uh, my, I am a very high E. I'm a very big extrovert. Uh, my wife is a pretty high I uh, introvert. Uh, and so as a result of that, that plays out. If anybody's here and you spend a lot of time with your, the opposite, you know, you experience life very differently. As an example, you know, the, the idea of getting ready for a party means two different things to introverts and extroverts. To an extrovert, when you hear, it's time to get ready for the party, usually the extrovert thinks, oh, it's time to dress up. The introvert, when they hear getting ready for a party, they usually hear, okay, it's time for me to psych myself up for that party. You experience life completely differently. And my wife and I are very much uh, different in that kind of way. My wife, she does everything. She makes every decision based on an enormous amount of processing and thinking I tend to make decisions based on, let's just see what happens. Just kind of exist. I like to exist with potential in the world. Our differences, though, right? Despite these differences, I also recognize that we are better together as a result of those differences, right? Unified in that kind of sense. And so the point just being, Jesus is calling his people to be different, to be who they are, to be who you are, in the ways that God has uniquely made you. And yet, when he sends us out in the world, he calls us, though we're different, to be unified. That said, we have to look at the challenge of unity. Because even as I say that, you can begin to imagine that's really difficult to accomplish. Let's consider it. Because it's wonderful to say that unity exists when different people come together and function as one. However, we know in most places this is almost impossible. You know, in uh, Paul's language, we know that it's much easier for ears to want to hang out with ears or feet to want to hang out with feet. Or let's just, you know, get a lot less hypothetical and maybe more concrete. It's easier for the wealthy to hang out with the wealthy. It's easier for those of particular cultural sensibilities to hang out with other people of that same cultural sensibility. It's easier for Democrats to hang out with Democrats, Republicans to hang out with Republicans. I mean, any identity or affinity group you can imagine, it's just easier to hang out with people who are like-minded or like-experienced than you. We know that it's easier, and we also know that's just how the world works. The world functions in segmented, walled-off silos that exclude those who are not like them. And of course, we know that this is very much what happens in the church as well. And so with that in mind, there's a couple of things to say about unity. 
First thing I want to say is that there is a difference between what is true about Christian unity and what will be true about Christian unity. And what I mean by that is that in one sense, Christians are already completely and perfectly unified as they are one in Christ. Ephesians 2 speaks of how the walls of hostility have been torn down and that Christ has made peace. Romans 6 tells us, uh, speaks of how Christians uh, have been baptized into Christ. Galatians 3 speaks of how there's no longer any Jew or Je- Greek or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but that we're all one in Christ. And of course, 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of how we are one body. And so in one sense, Christian unity is done. It's complete. And yet, like everything else in the Christian life, there are some things that are true, yet have not been fully experienced just yet. You know, as, a, as an example, God's kingdom, we've looked at this over uh, the course of this series, but God kingdom, God's kingdom has come, but his kingdom is also coming. It has come, but the full experience of it is coming one day. You know, for his people, for the Christian, we, would be- we believe that Christ has taken the consequences of our sin on the cross, and yet we will still suffer under the consequences of our sin. We believe that God is our healer, that Christ has taken our sickness, and yet we still get sick. In the resurrection, we believe that Christ has defeated death, and yet we will also die. I mean, this is the tension of what we've, we've called over and over again, the already not yet, that there are these great truths about what Christ has done, yet while those things are true, our experience of them is not complete until one day Christ returns. And Christian unity is no different. Christians are already a people, one body, perfectly and completely one in Christ. Yet our experience of that unity is not yet experienced until one day Christ returns. And so as a result, we need to fight against that which divides us because there are so many things that desire to split us apart, to divide us. And this, of course, like all aspects of the Christian life, is hard and often unpleasant. And a lack of unity is often the result. The reason why it's so unpleasant and hard is because more often than not, our disunity is likely the result of something other than Christ being our foundation. Or as we were singing a minute ago, Jesus is not the center of our lives. And so when Jesus is no longer the center and we place something else that's there, it will now begin to create division. I mean, why are divisions so normative, even amongst Christians? I mean, think about the things that often divide us. You know, political parties, racial issues, socioeconomic divides and status, particular theological persuasions. Why do these divisions exist where Christ says, There ought to be unity. Well, there's a few things I would say. The first is that sometimes those those divisions uh, come as a result of some very extreme errors uh, that cannot be reconciled, meaning the the divides are so deep that it's it's really hard to begin finding that type of unity because of the uh, division. Just as an example, you know, think about it in theological terms. If someone denies the Trinity— it is impossible to have true Christian unity with them because that's fundamental to what it means to be a Christian is to understand the nature of God. And so 
we can't have Christian unity where there's not even an agreement about what it means to be a Christian. So that's at least maybe one thing. The other thing that I would say is that there are some times when, when it's just simply uh, physically, emotionally, or spiritually not safe to be in proximity with particular people. And we've certainly seen this, of course, over the course of church history, but it's also very much the case on individual bases where there's grave injustices or abuse that exist. And so it's going to be really hard to be able to find that kind of unity unless serious things change. But that said, right, and there are certainly some important key distinctions to make here about how we experience unity. That said, many of the divisions are not the result of something extreme like that. Many divisions that we experience are actually tied to something that's been in existence since the beginning of time. And here it is. Ready? Here's why we are often divided. It's because more often than not, we desire to be superior. We desire to be superior to God and we desire to be superior to others. And if we are honest, we kind of like the divisions that exist because where the divisions exist, that usually gives us opportunity to feel better than someone else. It makes me feel better to say, oh, I could never be a Republican or I could never be a Democrat because they are all so whatever, fill in the blank. I'd rather just be with my own socioeconomic group or my own cultural category because those other people, they can be so whatever, fill in the blank. We actually like division and we love the pundits and the commentators and the politicians that stoke that division. Because those divisions and those influences make us feel better about ourselves as we think about those idiots on the other side of the aisle, whatever that aisle might be. Division is so often present because of this idolatry of self and a self-righteousness that exists. It's a desire for superiority. It happens all the time. But here's the key. The Christian faith is rooted, hear this, it's important, the Christian faith is rooted in one who had all power, all glory, all riches, who truly was better and superior to everyone else. And while he stood firm on truth and the word of God, he also humbled himself. Truly better than all of us and yet humbled himself, gave himself if you are a Christian, it is because of Jesus' humility that you are one. And when we forget that, we become arrogant and we sow the seeds of division. And the extent to which we remember Christ's humility is the basis for our welcome before God is also the extent to which we experience unity as well. Which means that seeing a humble Jesus working for us should result in a lifestyle of humility that is hard and costly, but also leads to profound unity, despite our differences. Uh, Thabiti Anabuele, who's a writer and a pastor in, uh, in a church down in the D.C. area, uh, he put it this way, and I actually have the, the quote, because I want to spend a minute talking about uh, his quote here. But he talks about this idea of humility and unity and how high of a cost it is. If you want to put that up, guys, let me read this for you. He puts it this way. 
If there is to be a fuller experience of unity, the cost will include humbling ourselves beneath God's entire word, humbling ourselves to fellowship with brethren on all sides of the issue, humbling ourselves to tell the truth without varnish, humbling ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding, humbling ourselves to say, I was wrong, or you were right, or please forgive me, or I didn't know that, and humbling ourselves to forgive. Because without humility, there will be too much pride for true practical unity. Humility, that's the cost of unity. And in the end with the question, is that too high a cost? I mean, there's so much that he hits on there. And I want to actually speak to a few very key things that he says in there. Let me draw some things out more specifically. First, he, he says that humbling ourselves, we need to humble ourselves beneath God's entire word. It's important to say that true humility and unity cannot happen unless people are submitting to the same authority. Right? Christian unity doesn't happen unless we're all under the same authority. It just can't. So submission to God and his word is key for Christian unity. So humbling ourselves before his entire word. The other thing that he says there is that we, need to, that we need to humble ourselves to fellowship with brethren on all sides. Question, do we seek out relationship with others who are very different than ourselves? You know, I've said this before, but I think many in our congregation would be fascinated uh, at how diverse our congregation is. Uh, of course, we're very racially and ethnically diverse, but even uh, below the, the superficial things. I think you'd be shocked at how incredibly diverse we are. And I wonder if you didn't realize that, if you're pursuing those who think differently, view the world differently than yourself. Another thing that he says is humbling ourselves to tell the truth without varnish. That true unity cannot happen without truth-telling. I find this to be especially true in relationships that are in need of reconciliation. Uh, reconciliation is not possible if all parties are not willing to deal honestly with the reason for the relational breakdown. We must be honest and truthful if we're going to experience unity. Another thing that he says is that we are to humble ourselves long enough to listen and consider before responding. You know, in a time where debates and conversation happen in sound bites and tweets, really listening to other people, like we've lost that as a virtue. Everything needs to get down to a tweetable sound bite, and that never produces the kind of humility that we need to pursue unity. Something else that he says is humbling ourselves to say I was wrong or you were right or please forgive me, or I didn't know that. Can you imagine if we did that more often? Can you imagine to hear, again, pundits or politicians say, please forgive me, I was wrong, you were right. We don't even have categories for that. There's not, <laughs> nothing more to say. Pursue that kind of posture with people. The last thing that he says there, is that we are to humble ourselves to forgive. As broken, fallen people, we are always going to hurt one another. And Christian unity requires forgiveness because without it, deep divisions will remain. If 
we're going to be a unified people, we need to learn how to forgive. And this, you know, these things exist in all different kinds of relationships. If you want a good marriage, you want good friendships, if you want deep Christian community, these are the things that are necessary. Humility produces that kind of unity. And for the follower of Jesus, this is what he calls us to, to be unified, to be humble. And as the beauty ends, the question then becomes, is that cost too high for us? And I would say, yes, it absolutely is. Left to our own devices, this is not going to be something that we pursue. It is too high a cost for us to pursue that kind of humility and um, unity. We don't possess the ability to do it. And all you have to do is look out into the world to see just how impossible this kind of pursuit really is. And so what, what then does that mean, right? So if true, we need to consider that some kind of power needs to come from outside of ourselves in order to, per, to pursue this kind of humility and experience this unity, which brings us finally to the power for unity. Uh, in the prayer of Jesus, uh, he does not just say that this unity is what he desires to see, but he also shows the way in which he expects it to happen. Look at verse 26. It gives us a clue as to how this is going to be accomplished. He says, I have, made, I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Okay. Did you catch what Jesus was saying there? He says to the Father, I made you known. But then he says, I will continue to make you known so that the love the Father has for Jesus might be in them as Jesus himself might be in them. Right? This is the basis for unity. But what does that mean? If you recall, following, immediately following this prayer, Jesus, he soon heads to the cross. So how is it that he's going to continue to make the Father known to his disciples? And remember, this prayer is for all of us who believe today. How is Jesus going to continue to make the Father known if he's about to go to the cross? And eventually, of course, he would ascend. We don't have Jesus with us. So how is he making this love known? Well, back in chapter 16, Jesus tells his disciples that it is best for him to go, right? They don't want him to leave, but he tells them it's better for me to go. And this is what he says in verse 7. Just let me read this for you. Jesus says, But very truly I tell you, it is good, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then he goes on to say, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak of his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from, sorry, it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. See what Jesus is saying there? That Jesus Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is present with us. And he's making the love of God known to us by the work of the Spirit that unites us to him in faith. So Jesus goes. 
but he sends us his spirit. And it's the spirit of God that makes it possible for us to pursue humility and to experience unity. You know, Romans 8, something I come back to all the time because my soul needs to be reminded of this, that it's the same power of the spirit that raised Christ from the dead that exists within me. And sometimes pursuing unity in the ways that we've just described seems like it's going to require that kind of power, the power to raise people from the dead. And it's that power that exists within you, Christian. And so as a result of that power, we can pursue humility and experience unity right now. And you know what I find to be beautiful? You know, earlier we were talking about how Christian unity is reflective of the Trinity. Every time we present as a unified people, Christian, we are giving the world a little glimpse of God himself. And it's the Spirit of God in us that's making all of that possible. And even though today we are discussing unity, know that the resurrection power of the Spirit is in you and helps us accomplish this. And don't ever believe that you and I are ever able to pursue such things on our own. Don't believe that we can accomplish all that God desires for us to accomplish out in the world without the power of the Spirit. Don't believe that we are so divided and fractured that there's no possible way that we could be unified together. We can have confidence that it's possible, that we can be unified and sent out as a result of the power of the Spirit. Just close with this. In Acts 1, Jesus tells his disciples that they will re- receive power. But receive power to do what? You remember? Jesus says that you will receive power to be my witnesses. And according to Jesus here in John 17, being a witness to the world is being a unified people. And so as we have faith in Jesus, do we recognize the great power that resides within us? May we trust the words of Jesus that he has sent his spirit to those who trust in him to give us a power to live in unity so that the world might know the love of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the unity that you accomplish in Jesus. Uh, We are a divided people, too often divided as a result of our own selfishness, our own self-righteousness, our own desire to be superior to others. But Lord, in that you confront us and you reveal to us just how broken and sinful we are. It is the one unifying reality of all humanity is that we are broken and sinful and in need of a Savior. And as we look to our Savior, the one who was truly superior, the one who held all power and authority, but who in humility came, laying down his life for us. It's this Savior that saves us. It's this Savior whose name we take. And so may we reflect a similar kind of humility that we might experience the unity that Jesus has called us to as he sends us out into his world. God, it's only by your spirit that this is possible. And so would you remind us of the spirit that lives within us? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.